It's good to be with you on this beautiful Lord's Day morning. We will be continuing in our teaching series, Seven Churches, a Call to Repentance and Reformation in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. We have, Lord willing, we have two left today and next Sunday, so it's been a series that I've been enjoying so far. Last Sunday, we looked at the church in Sardis. Uh, It was the church that thought it was spiritually alive when it was actually spiritually dead. After giving this terrible diagnosis, Christ appealed to the few remaining members who were spiritually alive and commanded that they wake up, strengthen what remains, remember the Word of God, obey the Word of God, and repent so that revival will come into their church and thus prevent the Lord from coming and destroying it at an unknown hour. In the next section, we are going to look at the church in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was located about 30 miles southeast of Sardis uh, in the Cogamus River Valley. It was the youngest of the seven cities. It was founded sometime after 198 B.C. Uh, It derived its name from its founder, King Attalus II, who was given the nickname Philadelphus because of his loyalty to his his older brother, uh, Eumenes, who was the king of Pergamum. Philadelphus is a combination of two Greek words, phileo, uh, which means love, and adelphus, which means brother. So when you combine the two, you get brother-lover. Philadelphia is similar, it's just slightly different. It translates as brotherly love. And the city was basically given Atlas's nickname, which reflected his brotherly love for his brother, Eumenes. Philadelphia was not founded as a military outpost like other cities in the region, such as Thyatira. It was founded as a missionary outpost for spreading Hellenism, basically Greek culture, Greek language, all things Greek. It was founded as an outpost to spread Hellenism throughout Central and Eastern Asia Minor. And it was totally successful at this. Uh, By AD 19, the main language of that entire region, which was Lydian, had been completely replaced by Greek. Philadelphia was also a, a prosperous city because it was located at the junction of several very important trade routes. It was actually called the Gateway to the East. In AD 17, a powerful earthquake rocked the entire region. Sardis was leveled, we talked about that last week, and 10 other cities were severely damaged, including Philadelphia. Since it was closer to the epicenter of the initial quake there, Philadelphia experienced many, many aftershocks which created additional panic. And it's interesting, it happened in 17 AD. This letter was written probably around 90 AD, but the aftershocks were still happening all the way up into the uh, the 90s. So this city was plagued by these minor earthquakes and aftershocks for many, many, many decades afterwards. And many of its citizens just, they would leave the city because of this. If they felt a slight tremor aftershock, they would pack up their stuff and leave the city, go outside of the city into the countryside, and they would set up tents and booths and stay out there until they felt it was safe. While other citizens would stay in Philadelphia during these periods of aftershocks, and they would try to maybe earthquake-proof their their homes and their businesses and these sorts of things, which wasn't very successful. But it was kind of a terrifying place to live because it had been rocked by a massive earthquake and many, many, many aftershocks for years afterwards. So it was kind of like if you lived there, you just didn't know what to expect. You were always in kind of fear of that. Like Sardis, Philadelphia also received financial aid from Rome to help rebuild the city. Um, and, And the citizens responded with great gratitude by erecting a temple honoring Caesar Tiberius. Now, this tells us that that Caesar worship or imperial cultism was present and popular there in Philadelphia. 
According to verse 9, there were Jews in Philadelphia, and they were, in typical manner, hostile toward the church. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later on. Like the letter to the church in Smyrna, this letter contains no corrections or threats of judgment, anything like that at all, because this little church was faithful to Christ, and I would say consistently faithful to Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3. We will be looking at verses 7 through 13 this morning. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. For teaching purposes, just to make it as easy as possible for you and for me during my study, I have divided this passage into five sections, and I will present to you three Ps. My name is Phil. That's not why. P's are just easy to put together. But I'm going to present to you three P's, and we'll unpack it that way, and I think it'll just make it more understandable for you and easy to write down. Let's go ahead and pray before we get to work, okay? Father, we thank you for this morning and the time of worship we've had together so far. We've been able to worship you through prayers. We've been able to worship you through giving and through singing and through the reading of your word. And... Um, now we come to this moment where we can worship you through uh, the preaching of your word. And, and we will worship you during this time as we pay attention. Uh, maybe if, if we're note takers, if we take notes. Um, but most of all, we will worship you through this as we apply and live out the word afterwards. And so we pray that um, that would be the goal for us, would be to be hearers and doers of the word. And that we would bring you much glory and that we would prove ourselves to be faithful to you through those acts and through those things, not only through what we believe or what we hear, but through what we do. And that is what this church did. So teach us, um, give us examples from this church today and set before us a model that we might be able to follow so that we can receive the same blessings. We thank you for this time. We pray that you're glorified in all that is said. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin with the first P. Number one, Christ's proclamation. We see this in verse 7. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What, what a greeting this is. Now, as we've seen uh, from previ the previous letters, Christ always introduces himself with a description reflecting his personhood, reflecting his character. In the last five letters that we've looked at, those descriptions came from John's initial vision in chapter 1, or from chapter 1 somewhere, maybe not in the vision, but maybe in John's introduction or greeting itself. But the description of him at the beginning of this letter to the church in Philadelphia is pulled from other places in Scripture. In other words, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't borrow from the initial vision in chapter 1. He loans or borrows from other passages in Scripture, from other truth. When Christ identifies himself as the Holy One, he was drawing from Old Testament passages that describe God as the Holy One. Take, for instance, Psalm 71, verse 22, where it says, I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness. O oh my God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. So Jesus is, when he calls himself the Holy One, he is borrowing from that psalm, Psalm 71, 22, and various passages that say the same thing. To say that God is holy is to say that He is set apart, is to say that He is separated from sin, is to say that His, his character, His personhood is absolutely flawless and perfect. And when Christ identifies Himself as the Holy One, He is declaring that He possesses what God possesses, divine holiness that he is separated from sin, that he is flawless, that he is utterly and absolutely perfect. What he's basically doing here is that he is declaring that he is holy God. That is what he is saying. 
Second, when Christ identifies himself as the true one, he was drawing from passages that describe God as the true God, like 2 Corinthians 15.3, or 2 Chronicles 15.3, pardon me, the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 15.3, which says, for a long time Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without the law. You can see right in the middle of the verse, the true God, the one who is the true God. He's not like the false gods. He's the true God, and he is truth. When Christ identifies himself as the true one, he is declaring that he is the true God, not a false one like Caesar, not a false one like the Greco-Roman gods and and all of the things and all of the religion and, and false deities and idols of Philadelphia and all of those Greek cities in Asia Minor. He is the true one, the true God. He is the holy one, the holy God. And third, when Christ identifies himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open or no one opens, he was drawing from Isaiah 22, verses 20 through 22, which describe a man by the name of Eliakim, who was pointed to a high position that allowed him to control access to the monarchy. He had the key to the house of David placed upon his shoulders, and he became a kind of sovereign doorman. If he opened the door, no one but him could close it. And if he closed the door, no one but him could open it. When Christ identifies himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, he is declaring that he alone has sovereign authority to determine who enters his kingdom. He is the sovereign doorman who holds the keys of David, which unlock or lock the gates of heaven. That is what he is declaring of himself here. He also, if you remember from chapter 1, verse 18, he also possesses or holds the keys of what? Death and Hades, right? Which means that he has, a sovereign, he has the sovereign authority to determine who goes to hell. This description that we see here as the one who holds the key of David, it, it also stresses his divine omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. In that what he does can, right? Because if he opens the door, no one can close it but him. So it, it illustrates his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. And what he does cannot be overturned by someone more powerful. Why? Because there is no one more powerful. Well, the Father's more powerful. No, he isn't. He and the Son and the Spirit all have the same power, all have the same sovereign authority, are all immutable, are all eternal, are exactly equal in their essence and being, although they have different roles in the salvation of men. In Isaiah 43, verse 13, God declared, When I act, who can reverse it? The answer is, no one. No one can reverse the acts of God. No one can reverse the acts of Christ. No one can reverse the acts of the Holy Spirit. They are all the same God in three persons. Christ is God, and when he acts, no one can reverse it. If he has flung open the door to his kingdom and given us eternal life, no one, no one, can close that door to us. No one can shut us out. Not even Christ. We'd say, well, he's the only one that can open and close the door. He can certainly close the door. He will never open the door to someone whom he's given eternal life and close it to them later. He's not like us. He's not finicky. He doesn't base whether he keeps the door open or not based on our allegiance to him or ability to obey, if he has flung this door open to us, it remains open and he will not shut it and no one can shut it. He has, as you recall from our series in John, he has promised to never cast out those who come to him for salvation by grace through faith, for they were given to him by his father. Why would Christ, after giving someone salvation, 
take it away from them when the Father is the one who gave that person to him in the first place. That would be to reject the Father's gift, which would show that there is an imperfection in the Trinity. It would prove that Christ doesn't want or doesn't cherish the gift that he's been given by his Father and that he reneges on his promises. And Christ cannot do any of those things. He cannot sin. He cannot renege. If he has flung open the the door to us, if he has given us eternal life, it remains open. It's, it's It's not the way that I would do it. Well, they were really good. That person was great on Monday. The door was open. But by Tuesday, boy, you should have heard the things that he was thinking because, you know, words are, uh, thoughts are unspoken words. But then I closed the door to him on Tuesday because he wasn't performing very well. But then he came to his senses on Wednesday, and I cracked the door a little bit. And then I realized I had to pull it shut again because he, again, failed to worship me perfectly. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. He is is the divine doorman, and if he opens the door, no one can shut it. If he closes the door, no one can open it. This tells us something about heaven, doesn't it? It's open to those whom he's opened it to, and to those whom he has not opened it to, they're not getting in no matter what they do. You can't pry it open. You can't jump the hedges. You can't get a, a bulldozer and blow through the door and get in there. You can't get in unless he opens it to you. And once he does, that's it. It's open. That's the first It's his proclamation of who he is. He is the holy God. He is the true God. He is the sovereign, divine doorman who opens and who closes. That's who he is. That's how he introduces himself, different from the other letters that we've looked at. Secondly, we see Christ's praise in verse 8. Christ continues by saying this to this faithful little church, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Christ praises this little faithful church for really three things here. First, he praises it for its works. The church in Philadelphia was a, a busy church. Uh, It was a church that performed good deeds. It was a service-oriented church. The thing that set it apart from other busy churches like Sardis is that its members were brimming with spiritual life and love for Christ. So their works and their deeds, the things that they did, they were were acts of worship and they were totally acceptable and, and pleasing to the Lord. The works in Sardis were superficial and found incomplete in the sight of God. We read that in verse 2 last week. Why? Because it was a spiritually dead church, verse 1. In other words, it didn't matter what it was doing. Even though it was bigger and busier and was doing more things and more ministry, it didn't have a heart of love for Christ. It was doing things just because of religion or for whatever reasons, just to fool people. Who knows what was going on in the hearts of those people? I know what was happening. Sin. And so it didn't matter what they were doing, yet you have this other church that was faithful and who loved him, and he praises them for their works. We must remember as Christians that that, that Christ is far more interested in the quality of our works than in the quantity of our works. You can toil and do a lot for the Lord, but if you're like Ephesus and have a half a heart that's half full of love, or if you're just doing things because you think it's going to earn something with Christ, it doesn't matter. What he looks at is the quality of our works, the position of our hearts as we serve him, as we remain faithful. So you don't don't have to do a a whole lot, although I would think that if you're a regenerated person who loves Christ, you're going to do a lot for his kingdom. You're going to want to, but it's not about quantity. It's about the quality of our hearts, the disposition and the attitude. He looks to those things. Because Israel made sacrifices for decades and centuries, and and he told them in, in his word, I don't care about those things. What I care about is your hearts. They were making sacrifices, they were going through the motions, but their hearts were wrong, which means it wasn't true worship. It's not about quantity, it's about quality. Quality matters. And and what is it that bolsters quality? What is it that, that amps up the quality of our deeds? It's our love for Him. 
He wants us to do what we do for him because we love him, not because we're compulsed, not because we're threatened, not because the pastor keeps pounding people to get into the nursery and help. (laughs) He wants us to respond with hearts set ablaze by his love and that, that, that our, our only response is to give of ourselves, is to give of ourselves. That's what he looks for. Love for him brings the, the quality level up when it comes to our works. And this church had that down. Boy, did they ever, and they got praised for it. Notice in the middle of verse 8 where Christ acknowledges the little power this church possessed. I love this. It had little power, not because of sin or a a lack of spiritual maturity, but because it was a little church, and most of its members lived at the poverty line or below. So it, it, it would have lacked people power because it was numerically small. It it lacked financial power because its members were working class people and and slaves and and probably some were unemployed, unfortunately. And, and, And it lacked resource power. Why? Because it just didn't have much. It's a small church. But let me tell you what it did have. It had spiritual power. It had that in, in abundance. It had gobs and gobs and gobs of spiritual power. I like what MacArthur wrote at this point. He said, despite its small size, spiritual power flowed in the, in the Philadelphia church. The gospel of Jesus Christ was, procla- was being proclaimed, consistently proclaimed. People were being redeemed and lives were being transformed. Now, just again, We're coming out of the letter to Sardis. And so, really, Christ, I think, deliberately plants this letter where it is so he can juxtapose this church with the big megachurch that we looked at last week. And just think about this. Sardis, on the other hand, had big power. It had had big power because it had bigger numbers. It had bigger power because it had bigger bucks. It had, it had bigger power because it had bigger resources, vast resources. But at the same time, it had zero spiritual power because it was spiritually dead. A church can be small and have little power when it comes to numbers, little power when it comes to finances, little power when it comes to resources. But if its members are faithful, it will have big spiritual power. And that, my friends, is what matters in the kingdom of God. That's what matters. Do you know how many small churches like ours hamstring themselves because they don't think they have enough people power or resource power or financial power. They automatically hamstring themselves because they don't think they have, they want what all the big churches have. And they don't think that they can be effective, that they can accomplish things for the very kingdom of God, for the building of the church and their community. Why? Because they're small and they just don't have what these other churches have. What a a failure to stop and smell the roses. What a failure to stop and analyze what's going on. If that little church, I don't care how big a church is, if that little church has faithful members who are, who are loving Christ and doing the works of the things that are mentioned in this text, that, that little church is a far more powerful force for the kingdom of God in its community than the biggest Goliath-sized megachurch that just has a bunch of goats and tares in it. Seriously. This church is that little church that has all of just gobs of spiritual power because it's faithful. I'm talking about the church at Philadelphia. Somebody smiled in the back. They were thinking, RHC, I'll talk about us in a little while. Don't worry, it'll be okay. But that is the difference. Now, that is not to say that larger churches, we don't want to just curse all large churches. There are large churches that are filled with faithful members who are very, very spiritually powerful. We don't, we don't want to just say because a church is large, it can't be spiritually powerful. There, are, there have been times where I've longed that we would grow numerically, but not just numerically, 
but that we would grow spiritually because I think that if you're a larger church and you have faithful members, I think that you can accomplish, potentially accomplish more spiritual good in your community than a tiny church can. I would love to see that happen at RHC. We'd have to get more elders. But, you know, don't discount what a small... This church is being praised for being spiritually powerful even though it's small. Philadelphia. This is astonishing. This little place, that little church, little Philadelphia, it had gobs of spiritual power. It had faithful members who were living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, my friends, is a threat, is an absolute threat to the devil and his demons. That is what he fears most, are faithful Christians, whether it be in a small body or big body of Christ. Second, Christ praised the church in Philadelphia because it had what? Kept his word. This means that it did not deviate from the pattern of obedience to the word of God, thus proving that it truly loved Christ, right? Because what proves that we truly love Christ? We all say it, but what proves it? Obedience. He said it over and over and over on the, the last night of his, during the, uh, the high, before the high priestly prayer, during the, the last supper, he said it repeatedly a couple of times. He said that if you love me, you will obey me. Love is, 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 for him is proven through obedience to his commands. That's how we show forth that we actually truly love him. And, and this little church remained on, on, the, on the path of obedience. It kept obeying his commands, obeying his word. It read his word, it studied his word, but it, it did his word. These people weren't just hearers, they were doers. And they're actually being praised here for this. They're being praised for this. Third, Christ praises this little church for not denying his name. And I think that this is just remarkable that they were able to do this. You have to consider their environment. You have to consider how hostile that community was to the church, to Christians. I mean, Greek culture... Greco-Roman culture was totally inflammatory and, and just toxic toward the church, and, and so was Judaistic culture. The Jews hated Christians in the first century and persecuted them mightily. You might have forgot, but it was actually Jews who killed Jesus. They hated the church. And, and this little church is, is, and my wife hates it when I use this word, it was nestled. It was nestled right there in the midst of just tremendous persecution, just utter hatred for these believers, a, a hostile, difficult, a war zone. This place was a spiritual war zone with many casualties. Persecution and, and the suffering associated with it literally could be brought to a, it could be vanquished and brought to an end. All you had to do was deny the name of Jesus. If they heaped it upon you and all the abuses and scourgings and whips and criticisms and all those things and you lost your, your job and all these things because of Christ, all you had to do to gain all of those things back was just to deny Christ. To do as, as, as Martin Luther was told to do. Just deny him and everything will be peachy. That's all you had to do. That's all they had to do. And yet, this church refused to deny his name. Right? It remained loyal to Christ despite the cost. That's what he says. You, you didn't deny my name. You haven't denied my name. And Christ, who is all-seeing and all-knowing, knows exactly what they've been experiencing, all of the hatred and toxicity and poison and even violence that was being committed against them. Christ praised the church in Philadelphia for its faithfulness, which was manifested through its works, through its obedience, through its loyalty. But he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. He also set before them an open door which no one is able to shut. What does this mean? 
Well, this open door certainly represents their access into his kingdom. He, he just declared himself to be the Davidic key holder. So it has to be tied to that. Why did Christ open the door to them? Because they were, you know, they did a whole bunch of works. They earned their way into the kingdom. No, not at all. He opened the door to his kingdom to them because they proved themselves to be true believers through their faithfulness and through the works and through the obedience and through the loyalty. They were true Christians. That's why the door was open to them. All these other things were just tests and things to, 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 to show forth who they truly were, truly in Christ, and maybe to refine and sanctify them. And he, he tells them here, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut this door to you. You are in my kingdom. It doesn't matter what they shut you out to in your culture, in your community, in, in Philadelphia. It doesn't matter if they throw you out of this or throw you out of that. It doesn't make a difference. You have an open door into my heaven, into my kingdom. As I said, their works, their obedience, their loyalty, it all proved that they were true Christians. The door was open because of that. And the open door, it's, re- it's broader than that. It represents new opportunities for service and evangelism in their community. Because they were faithful and could be trusted with little, Christ opened doors to where they could engage in further and more gospel exploits and church ministry. Kind of like what Paul experienced while he was in Ephesus. God had opened to him a wide door for effective work there. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. I'll tell you what's in, what's in effect here, what's happening here. The, the stewardship principle that we see in Luke 19, that's what was in full effect here. A church that is faithful with little will be given more. Christ will open doors of opportunity to that church that proves to be faithful with less. Isn't that beautiful how that works? He is the great divine sovereign door opener, and He will open those doors when we are faithful. But most importantly, He has opened the door to His kingdom to us if we are true believers. That's what He means. Let's move to the third P, Christ's promises. Christ's promises. We see this in verses 9 through 12. There are eh, probably more than three, but there's three primary promises that I see here. Let's begin with the first one. A, the church... (laughs) This is just amazing. The church shall prevail over its persecutors. Verse 9. Okay, okay, listen, this is a faithful little church that's being pulverized by its culture and community. It has many persecutors, especially Jewish persecutors. And Christ, the first thing Christ promises is that they're going to prevail over their persecutors. We see it in 9. Behold, listen, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Wow. Could you imagine living in a community where you have relentless persecutors all around you, and then Christ tells you that, guess what? They're going to come bow at your feet. I'd be like, can we do that today? Because that would be really cool. Because I actually have to leave the building in a little while and they're going to be on me. As I mentioned earlier, there were hostile Jews in Philadelphia and they persecuted this church mercilessly. Christ won't even refer to them as true Jews here, but he calls them members of the synagogue of Satan. He used this exact same description regarding the Jews' at Smyrna, right, the other church that was highly persecuted that received no corrections. He did that in chapter 2, verse 9. They are part of the synagogue of Satan as well. According to Romans 2, 28 and 29, a true Jew is one who has experienced circumcision, not of the flesh because they were big on that, but circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. That is regeneration. 
In other words, a true Jew is one who has been born again and believes in their Messiah, Jesus Christ. That is a, a true Jew. In a sense, every believer is a true Jew or at least member of true Israel. That's you and I. We Gentiles have been grafted in because of our faith and we are now of the seed of Abraham, which makes us true Jews or true Israel in a sense. We don't have the ethnicity, but we have the spiritual component. A true Jew is someone who has been born again. A, a true Jew is not one who persecutes the Lord's people and who, and who profanes the name of Christ. Even though they might be Jewish by birth, their heritage, their religion, they're not truly Jewish according to Scripture because they deny their Messiah and because they persecute the church. Incredibly, Christ predicts that the, the church in Philadelphia will prevail over its persecutors when Christ makes those wannabe hostile Jews come and bow down before the feet of the church and learn that Christ loves that church and the whole church. Bowing before someone's feet depicts abject, total defeat and submission. Similar language is used in Genesis 42, verse 6, where Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him. And in Isaiah 45, verse 15, Isaiah 49, 23, and Isaiah 60, verse 14, which describe unbelieving Gentiles, non-Jews, bowing down to the believing remnant of Israel. Now, the great question that we have here is how would Christ make them come and bow down? Is this some kind of a covert operation? Is this a militaristic thing? Is this a, a future thing that will happen in His kingdom where He conquers all His adversaries and enemies? Is that what He's referring to here? In other words, will He physically conquer, subjugate, and force them to come to the church and bow down? No. No. Think again of the open door in verse 8. He would spiritually conquer them through the ministry of this church, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ combined with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he will conquer their persecutors. He would convert them. He would make them Christians. And by the way, you don't make yourself a Christian. Christ makes you one. He would make them Christians. And as a result, they will join the church and bow down before the feet of their new brothers and sisters in submission as they realize the horrific persecution they laid upon these people, as they are made to realize that Christ loves the church, as they realize that, that the true salvation of God is not just for Israel and Jews, but for the entire world, every tribe and tongue, that's what these Jewish proselytes, these Jewish converts would be made to realize. And at that point, they can't help but bow at the feet of the Christians in sorrow, in sadness, in submission. We're so sorry for what we did to you. That's what's going to happen. And I tell you what, this is the kind of church that would respond to that well, not go, really? You know, good, take that. This is the kind of church that would reach down and pick them up and say, first of all, don't bow before me. I'm a man. Let's fall prostrate together before our merciful Christ. You are our brothers. You are our sisters in Christ. Welcome. Welcome home. That's what this church would do. And this promise has a broader prophetic meaning. It doesn't just pertain to that particular moment or in five years, or whenever this would actually happen. It's got broader implications. In the future, Christ shall prevail over every adversary, and the people of God will never, ever, ever have to deal with persecution again. So it has a prophetic future meaning that goes beyond the Philadelphian experience, that there comes a day when Christ will prevail over all enemies and persecutors, and the church will live in harmony and peace or his kingdom will be characterized by harmony and peace forever. There won't be any more persecutors. That is coming. So it has that broader implication. Now let's move to the second promise, B. And this is the one where, 
we, we could come at this one from, I don't know, four or five different angles. Because it has, there's just multiple ways to interpret what Christ has said here. But for the most part, B, the church shall be kept from the hour of trial that is coming. Verses 10 through 11. Listen to what Jesus says to them. Because you have kept my word and uh, about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The church in Philadelphia proved to be true through obedience and patient endurance, which we typically call perseverance. It was a, a persevering church, and that proved that it was faithful and true. And because of this, Christ promised to keep it from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. Christ goes on to actually describe this hour of trial in vivid detail in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Okay? So what he says here, I'm going to keep you from that hour, once they get to chapter 16, they didn't have chapters and titles, but once they get to that area as the letter's being read, they're going to begin to realize this must be the hour of trial he's talking about. And it goes on for many, many chapters. And in chapter 7, verse 14, Christ just straight up calls this hour of trial the great tribulation. It's referred to this in this way in Daniel 9, I believe, and a few other places in Scripture. The great tribulation is a, is a future period where God will bring fierce judgment upon the earth uh, just prior to the return of Christ and establishment of His kingdom. Although many will disagree with me, especially preterists, I believe that this is precisely what Christ is pointing to here. He is talking about the great tribulation. That is a period unlike any before. And, as I said, it's illustrated in chapter 6, verse, uh, chapter 6 through 19, the great tribulation. I think that's what Christ is obviously pointing to here. Now, preterists, and we'll cover a few different views here, preterists believe that this moment that Christ is talking about here and the moment that's talked about in chapter 6 uh, through 19, the great tribulation, they do believe it's an actual event, but they believe it already happened in 70 AD. Well, how could this have possibly happened in 70 AD when the historical evidence tells us that the book of Revelation was written after that. So why would Christ be prophesying about a past event? And, and also, if you read, if you carefully read chapters 6 through 19, you will realize... Now, what happened in 70 AD was very significant, and I think prophesied in Scripture, especially in places like Daniel. That was prophesied. Antiochus, Epiphanes, and the, and the um, desolation and all that stuff, that, that's been prophesied. And I think it has broader implications. I think it has broader prophetic meaning. But for the most part, how, how, could, how could John be recording a prophecy for the future? How could preterists believe that it already happened when it's something for the future? Now, what some, like R.C. Sproul, will do is they'll try to date the authorship of Revelation before 70 A.D., and he does a pretty good job of describing it, but eh, we, we know it was written after that. John was not on Patmos around 70 AD. I mean, that's just a historical fact. So Christ clearly states in verse 10 that this event is what? Coming. It's not a past event. It's coming. So it couldn't have happened in 70 AD. And as I was saying a moment ago, if you look at chapters 6 through 19, you'll realize there are certain features and things that are mentioned in those texts that clearly did not happen in 70 A.D. 70 A.D., what happened, and maybe you don't even know what happened in 70 A.D., but Rome marched on Jerusalem and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple, and the temple's been destroyed ever since. It was terrible. There was about a million Jews killed and slaughtered. The streets were filled with blood. It was a horrible, horrible thing. But the events of 70 A.D. do not line up, according to Revelation, with this thing that Christ is talking about. It's just there's some things that happen, but it's not the same. So the preterists say that, yes, there's a great tribulation, but guess what? It happened in 70 AD. But I don't think there's just too many things that refute that. Amillennialists and 
Not all of them, because it's a pretty broad camp. Uh, but I would maybe point to Kim Riddlebarger and Sam Storms. They're pretty well-known amillennials. They believe that the Great Tribulation is not a literal future event, but an expression that is used to describe all of the persecution that the church has gone through during the church age or during the current age. So they say this isn't a future event. This is a representation of all of the persecution the church has, has gone through and will go through until Christ returns. So it's not an event. It's a reality that incorporates all of the suffering. And, and they do cite a lot of scriptures and things. There's a lot of scriptures that they use, and sometimes when they describe them, they seem to make some sense, not in regards to that, uh, but in regards to other things. Um, and there are, as I said, different types of amillennialists, but the one thing that they do all seem to have in common is a non-literal approach to interpreting vast swatches of Scripture. And some Scripture is not meant to be taken literal. It's a metaphor or something like that, but it has a rock-solid truth in there somewhere. But there are some Scriptures that we are to interpret literally, and that's one thing that many of them, if not all of them, they just have a different way of approaching Scripture. And amillennialism really began to emerge during Constantine, slightly before, but really during his reign. And it held sway over the church for a very long time, up to the middle 1800s. In fact, it's still very, very popular among Reformed theologians and the Reformed movement. And if you study um, their writings and things, there are things that you will agree with and there are things that you won't agree with. When you study the stuff of the preterist, you'll disagree with most of it. You will. Now we get to the other two, both historical and dispensational premillennialists take the words of Christ literally and believe that the Great Tribulation is an actual future event. They take the scripture we're looking at here and interpret literally. He is referring to something that is going to happen in the future. The main difference between these two groups, right, because you have historical and you have dispensational, the main difference between them is what actually happens with the church during that time or just prior to it. There's where the difference is. Both believe that the church will be what, as Christ said, kept from the hour of trial, but they differ on how it will be kept from the hour of trial. Historical premillennialists say that the church will remain on earth during this time, but Christ will preserve it as the judgments of God unfold. Nay, like, like the other groups, they support their position with various scriptures and the logic and fact that God has always, I mean, that the people of God have always had to go through tribulation, always had to go through difficulty, and yet the remnant has always been spiritually preserved. And they will use that point as a main point to argue that the church can actually go through the tribulation and make it. There's one chink in the armor. There's like tons of Christians who are slaughtered, but they are not slaughtered spiritually during that time. So this has to do more with a spiritual preservation. But that's what the historical premillennialist will argue. He will say, look, the church will be kept from that hour spiritually primarily. We will, it will be preserved. Christ will preserve it during that time. And if you know your history, you will know that nearly every early church father, including Polycarp, who knew uh, the Apostle John perfectly, they were all early premillennialists. They all held that view. Not all of them, but almost all of them. That was the prevailing eschatological view of the early church. And I would love to argue with you if you don't believe that, but I have been reading on this so much. That was the view. It was not amillennialism in the first days, and it was not dispensational premillennialism. It wasn't. Now, here's the deal. Dispensational premillennialists say that the church will be raptured, right? And that, that rings a bell. We all like the sound of that. In fact, that's the official position of this church. But they say that the church will be raptured or removed from the earth at the onset of the great tribulation. In other words, it will be taken away by Christ just before God unleashes judgment. So their preservation has to do with, their view has to do with removal, not just preservation during. It's more like a removal and protection. And then guys in our camp will take that further and say that's when the church will, you know, 
uh, receive its rewards and all these things and, and what have you. And they, of course, support their position with several scriptures and they absolutely use verse 10 of this text where it says Christ will keep them from the hour of trial. So they use this text. And we, what we actually call this is, is pre-tribulationalism or pre-trib rapture. Now, here's the deal. Supporters will argue, supporters of this view will argue that this, this view has been around for a long, long time while critics say it started in the 1830s with Darby. And you guys that are dispensational premillennialists may be thinking, well, it's got to go back further than that. Well, what goes back further than that is historical premillennialism. I can't find any evidence of anyone in the church believing in pre-trib rapture prior to the 1830s in my research. What does that say? That it's false? Not necessarily. But it's pretty new. That view is fairly new. But it does have some ancient roots. It, again, if you look at historical and dispensational premillennialism, they're pretty much identical with the exception of what happens with the church during the tribulation. There's the primary difference. They believe, they both believe in a thousand-year reign. They both believe in a millennial kingdom. Or, you know, they believe the same things. It's almost identical, but there's some slight differences. So we have to ask this question. I'm bogging you down with theological terms and all this. We have to ask this question. Which view is correct? The preterist view? The amillennial view? The historical premillennial view or the dispensational premillennial view? Which of these views is correct? Let me tell you which view is correct. Jesus' view is correct. <laughs> he will keep the true church from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. God is going to unleash His judgment. The church will somehow be preserved, I think, spiritually. How will He do it? I have no idea. Is it a rapture? I don't know. Is it preservation? I don't know. It's one of those things, but He will certainly do it. Are we going to believe what His Word says? Are we going to take what He says literally here? We should. He will do it. How? The nuts and bolts? I don't know. And I think it's a mistake to, to settle on one of those positions and bang that drum the whole time and dismiss everyone else who has a different view. I do. I think it's a mistake to do that. And I have to ask the question, since we know that Jesus' view is the one that's correct, even though it's a bit hard to understand, but we know he's going to do what he's going to do, what should the church do in the meantime? Spin its wheels trying to nail this stuff down and figure it all out? Trying to write it all out and, you know, join with Harold Camping and try to lay out a timeline. And is that what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to have endless end time prophecy conferences? And you want, you want to borrow from the seventh day folks? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is this what we're supposed to focus on? The minutia and, and the mechanics of how this will play out? Is this what we're to do? No. No, not at all. What we should do is heed Christ's exhortation in verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. That's the right response. I wonder if when this letter was read and it talked about how he would preserve the church or protect the church, he would keep them from the hour, I wonder if all of the theological experts in the room started discussing the end times. Well, I tell you what, I'm an all-millennialist guy and... I don't think any of them did that. I think they praised God that they would be somehow shielded and protected from the immense wrath of God falling upon this world in a way that has never been seen. And that's another thing. There's no way this could have happened according to the preterists in 70 AD because what is described in the Revelation goes so far beyond what happened in 70 AD. First of all, that was not even global. This is, what is the terminology used here? The whole world. And I'll tell you what, that's not the focus. The focus is to focus on and to heed his exhortation. He's coming. Knowing that Christ shall soon return should motivate us to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. There's where we focus. We should conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Philippians 1.27, and we should do as Christ exhorted in verse 11, hold fast to what we have so that we do not lose our reward. What is it that we have that we must hold on to? Faith! 
faith. What is our reward? It is our crown, it says. The crown. Don't lose the crown. What is the crown? It's the Stephanos Zoe, the crown of life. Chapter 2, verse 10. Only those who preserve under trials and keep the faith until the end shall receive the crown of life. And the true church, true Christians will absolutely do that. But they will not do it apart from their own labors and their own, their own practices and disciplines. God is sovereign and he preserves his church but believe it or not, he actually does that through each individual Christian as they, as they engage their faith through study and discipline and these sorts of things. If, if, if God is sovereign at the point to where we just don't have to do anything, then why would we be commended to fight the good fight of faith? It's not a fatalism. God is sovereign. He will preserve us, but he will preserve us through our fight. We must fight. We must fight. And there are, there are forces that are always trying to take the crown from us, are there not? Always. We have a devil and demons that are constantly on us trying to snatch that up, trying to take it. And we must, we must heed his warning. We must fight. We must hang on to it. Now let's move to the third promise. See, conquerors shall be given a permanent place in heaven. This is represented in verses 12 and 13. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And, on, and my own new name you shall write on him too. And then verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now a pillar represents stability permanence and immovability. Pillars can also represent honor. In pagan temples, they were often carved in such a way as to honor a particular deity. The marvelous promise Christ makes to the church in Philadelphia and all true believers, conquerors, is that they will have an eternal place of honor in the temple of God, a.k.a. heaven. To people used to flee in their City, because of earthquakes and aftershocks, the promise they will not go out from heaven was understood as security in eternal glory. You know, these people were running, used to running out of the city and not having any kind of sense of security in the city because of the aftershocks. And he's telling them here, you're going to be like a pillar in the city of my God, Jerusalem. You don't have to worry about running out of it. The door is open to you. You'll be a pillar. It's rock solid. Nothing can shake it. That's what he's saying. Christ will also write the name of his God, the name of God's city, and his own new name on them. What does he mean by this? Well, it depicts ownership, right? It's funny, I borrowed a DVD from Dave Doyle the other day, and at the bottom of it, it says, like, this belongs to the library, library of David Doyle. He wrote that on his DVD. So, so when I attempt to keep it, or forget about it, he can say, look on the back. Property of David L. Is it L. Doyle? Is that like Lawrence or whatever? It's better than Noel, believe me. But <laughs> Writing your name on something. I, we have DVDs around our house that used to, they belong to Rachel's dad, and he would write property of Jim Moyer on them. Once in a while, you'll pull one out, and it says property of Jim Moyer. reminds us of her dad when he was around. He was a character. But the idea here is the same. It's ownership. Dave put his name on that DVD because it belongs to him. He doesn't realize he donated it to Phil. <laughs> Putting your name on something, right, inscribing your name on something, it shows that you own it. And, and this church and the true church shall have the name of God, the name of his city, the new Jerusalem, and Christ's new name. I don't even know what that means. What is his new name? But those names will somehow be on us, right? And that depicts ownership. It signifies that all true believers belong to God, belong to his city, the new Jerusalem, and belong to Christ who purchased them with his own precious blood. It also speaks of the intimate personal relationship that true believers have with God forever, right? 
He has our names on him. We have his names on us in a sense. And of course, in verse 13, Christ finishes this letter with the same thing that he finished all of them with, and that's the exhortation to, you know, to listen to the Spirit. You know, those who have ears to hear, to, to listen to what the Spirit says to the church at Philadelphia, and what? To obey his instruction. That's the exhortation every letter ends with. Closing. I have been, as I've been studying and, and just looking at these letters, you know, I have been looking for one that squares really well with RHC. And, and to be honest with you, you know, and, and, and because of my own, my own sinfulness too at times and my own failures, and of course yours, I think we've been able to see a little bit of ourselves in every letter so far. You know, we, we sometimes have that half-hearted love. We, we do tend to tolerate sin at times, especially our own, right? And I wasn't using hyperbole when I said that we need revival in this church because I do believe we have some spiritually dead people here. And whenever I say that, everyone goes, I wonder if it's me. You should never have to ask that because you should know whether you're spiritually alive or dead. You should never have to ask anyone, do you think I'm spiritually alive or dead? You should know that you have the Holy Spirit. You should know that you're a new person. There's just no way that can escape you. But I think that there's touches of this church in every letter, and I think there will be next week as we look at the lukewarm church, Laodicea. I think that letter describes a great many churches today. But this whole time I've been looking to see, okay, there's got to be one here that really kind of speaks to who we are and that we can really identify with it. And I found it. It's Philadelphia. We, like all churches, have our problems, don't we? We have our issues. And as I said, I wasn't using hyperbole. I think we need some revival. That'd be wonderful. But when I stop and think about our church as a whole, the data shows that the majority of our family members display incredible faithfulness to our Lord. You do that. Do we all do it perfectly? Not always. And sometimes, especially if you're wired like me, I am one of those types of people that tends to focus on the negative. You know, you could have 10 people doing amazing things and displaying just utter faithfulness and then in the 11th person is the unfaithful one who's who's dragging you through the mud and and all that and guess what i tend to focus on number 11 i've done that here forgive me for focusing wrongly and for failing to be thankful and for celebrating all the lord's goodness here with you you know, I didn't come to realize this because you threw a surprise party for me. That just made it worse. <laughs> I was realizing it as I was writing the end of this sermon an hour before I had to leave to go work for Brenda, which was my surprise party. <laughs> and as I was writing, I got about halfway through a paragraph and I realized, Phil, all you're talking about you're, you're missing this entire letter and the purpose of this letter. This letter is an entire letter of praise to faithful Christians. And here you are trying to write something negative and focus on the handful at RHC that seemingly don't care. And that is sinful for you to do that. So I'm starting to realize this, and then I said, well, I will just pick up tomorrow and start writing tomorrow because, you know what, I'm going to be a different man, I'm going to have a different perspective, but darn it, I have to go work for Brenda right now. 
So as I get closer to the facility where I was allegedly working for Brenda, I pull up and I'm not supposed to enter the property until a certain time because there was a previous event there. Lie. (laughs) And as I pull in, there's a whole bunch of people at the end of the driveway, but I can't really see them because I'm almost 50. (laughs) I have no idea who they are. And I'm told you can come in now. And as I get closer and closer and closer, it looks like I see Brenda. And then I see a whole bunch of other people from RHC. And the first thought that crosses my mind is, Brenda's amazingly talented. She recruited all these people to help her with her nephew's event. (laughs) That's how dense I am. And then I realized what it actually was. That was probably one of the biggest affirmations that I've ever had in my life. Because just prior to that, I was realizing how negatively focused I've been and how I have in many ways mistreated you. Maybe you weren't even aware of this. <laughs> just seeing all of you there with the smiles on your face was just like a steak. I think I need to live a more disciplined life and to focus more on the goodness of God and celebrate His goodness in my life and in the life of this church. So, the praise the church in Philadelphia received from Christ for its faithfulness is our praise because RHC, you have been faithful. You have been faithful. The blessing the church in Philadelphia received from Christ is our blessing. It's your blessing. Christ has set before us an open door for ministry and evangelism in our community. The great question is, will we step through it? Will we engage and seize the many, many opportunities that He gives us to be light and salt? The promises the church in Philadelphia received from Christ are our promises. They belong to RHC. We shall prevail over our persecutors because Christ will either conquer them spiritually or crush them physically. We shall be kept from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. We shall be given a permanent place in heaven. All of these things belong to us. If we are true Christians, we are going to be faithful. And that will prove itself through the works and through the obedience and through the loyalty to Christ. And all of these things belong to us because Christ says to this church, these things are yours. And yet, we mustn't forget the only instruction the church in Philadelphia received is also our instruction, isn't it? We must hold fast to what we have, faith so that our reward, our crown, is not taken from us. We must persevere through trials, and we must keep the faith until the end. In other words, we must keep trusting and believing in Christ all the way till the end of our life or until He returns. And if we do this, we shall receive our reward, the crown of life.